Well, this evening, we're continuing in our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, and this is the the third sermon in Matthew 18. And for those of you who have been a part of this series so far, Matthew 18 is the, the, the fourth of the five great discourses in the book of Matthew. Uh, but we're not going to do a big overview uh, this week of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, some of you remember last week, the most immediate context had to do with how to treat somebody who uh, has fallen into sin. Well, with that said, um, we won't be touching too much on the, the previous context. For tonight, though, uh, we want to think about uh, the reality of how we ourselves internally are to react to sin. And to frame this, I uh, wanted to bring up how uh, maybe some of you have observed uh, the reality that when you walk around the neighborhoods around the church, uh, you may stop and look at, or as you're walking by, you see the signs that people have put into their windows. Uh, it's become quite common to see various signs in windows, and some of these signs are, of course, uh, somewhat silly or, or unimportant, you might say. On, on my street, um, a person put a sign in the window which gives all of the interesting facts about the cat that sits in that window still. Um, I know some of you are thinking, how could there be interesting facts about a cat? But I guess you'll have to go look for yourself. More frequently found in windows of Philadelphia row homes are creeds. The word creed uh, comes from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. And these creedal signs say things like, in this house, we believe. Uh, These are creedal statements. And then what follows from that we believe is a long and often colorful, variety of different colors, variety of different fonts, set of beliefs that are listed. And so based on this observation, I've, I've come to the conclusion through all of these different signs that Philadelphia is a very creedal city. As many of you know, these creedal statements are, are quite politically and, and ethically charged, if you've seen them. And so I won't be dissecting the veracity or the you know, biblical fidelity of these creeds. That's not my goal tonight. I, I bring them up instead to illustrate that humans, are, humans are, are, are creedal people. We want to believe something, and we want those beliefs to guide our ethics. According to you know, the very important source, dictionary.com, a creed is a set of beliefs or aims which guide someone's actions. And if you look at any of these signs in the, the windows around our church, these are a set of beliefs or aims which guide someone's actions. And the, and the same is true of Christians, Christian creeds, that is. Christians who believe in the triune God and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus Christ affirm certain creeds. Uh, If you know anything about church history, we've affirmed a lot of important creeds in the first 500 years or so of the life of the church after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we often recite and affirm these creeds in our morning liturgy. If someone asks us what we believe, we know the answer. Each week we say out loud as a group what we believe about God and his creation. And one of the key statements that we make is found in the the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. It's the phrase, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. If you are a Christian, or if you're, uh, someday you think you'll be a Christian, you know, you could put in your window the phrase, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And since this would not be the norm, 
Your neighbor might ask you, what do you mean? I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And if we are honest, or if I'm honest, we might have to acknowledge that in a certain sense, we struggle to know what this creedal statement truly means. And this should not surprise us. Forgiveness is far more profound and and supernatural than we give it credit for. In a perhaps apocryphal story, but one that's passed around nevertheless, C.S. Lewis was asked what makes Christianity unique amongst all of the world religions. And, And he immediately responded, that's easy, the forgiveness of sins. Now, don't get me wrong. You might be able to tell your neighbor Uh, You might be able to give them a a nuts and bolts explanation that they could probably find on something like Wikipedia. But for Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, talking about forgiveness is not proof that someone understands the concept. This is very important. In the Gospel of Matthew, talking about forgiveness, even talking accurately about forgiveness, is not proof that, um, that someone understands the concept of the forgiveness of sins. Instead, according to Jesus in Matthew 18, a person who understands the phrase, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, is the person who offers constant, heartfelt, sacrificial forgiveness to others as a response to God's forgiveness to them. The creed explains what we believe, and according to Jesus, how we should act. Like the creeds of other religions, which you see in the windows of the homes in the row homes around the church, the Christian creeds, especially when it comes to the forgiveness of sins, are both prophetic and ethical. Just like the creeds that you see in all the the windows here, the the creeds of, of the Christian faith, especially the phrase, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, is both prophetic and ethical. It tells us what we believe, the content of our belief, and that way it's prophetic. It is explaining truth, but it's also ethical. According to Jesus, if we do not offer constant, heartfelt, sacrificial forgiveness to others in response to what God has done for us, we don't understand this phrase, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And tonight's passage, along with the Lord's Prayer, makes it explicitly clear that if you fail, if you fail to offer constant, heartfelt, sacrificial forgiveness to others, you do not understand forgiveness yourself. Forgiveness is one of those doctrines, according to Jesus, it's one of those doctrines that has practical effect on those who understand and receive it. And based on what we'll see in Jesus' words tonight, the proof of your understanding is in your own forgiveness of others. Unless we respond to God's heartfelt sacrificial forgiveness that he has offered to us with heartfelt sacrificial forgiveness towards others, we don't understand the phrase, I believe, in the forgiveness of sins. And we will see this, I believe, in four simple steps in tonight's passage. In in 21 and 22, we see that forgiveness is constant. That's the first word you should remember. Forgiveness is constant, 21 and 22. In 23 through 27, we see forgiveness is sacrificial. Sacrificial is the next big word you should remember. 28 through 33, we see forgiveness is reactive. It's reactive. And then 34 and 35, we see forgiveness is heartfelt. 
Well, as I said in the introduction, the occasion for teaching these four truths about forgiveness is a question from Peter. And just, uh, Jesus has just finished teaching about how to help restore someone to repentance. That's what the immediate section is about, how to restore someone to repentance and fellowship who has sinned against you. But now, Peter, in the second half of this, this fourth discourse, Peter essentially says, okay, Lord, I, I understand how we're supposed to treat them so that they're restored, this brother of ours, through these various steps. We're trying to bring them back and win over our brother. But what do I do with the pain in my heart? That's the question that you could say Peter is asking, or as he says it explicitly, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? It's the answer to this question that we see our first point, that forgiveness is constant. If you look at Jesus' response in verse 22, Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And this is where we have to really feel sorry for Peter. (laughs) You know, he's constantly saying the wrong thing, but I think actually this time he's trying to say the right thing. Standard rabbinic practice at the time, you know, the the practice of the, the Jewish religion in this time period when Jesus would have been discipling his 12 followers and on his way to the cross, the standard rabbinic practice at the time, sources say, was maybe for someone to say, yeah, you should forgive your brother four times. But Peter has upped it to seven. It's as though he's thinking, man, I'm not getting this one wrong. I'm going to add three. I'm getting this right. We are supposed to forgive seven times. But, but Jesus takes this number and perhaps Peter's good intention and multiplies it times 11. Not seven times, Peter, but 77 times you are supposed to forgive your brother. I, I, I can see some of you putting a note in your phone that says, create an Excel sheet with 77 lines titled, Countdown to Vengeance. Okay, delete that note. Jesus' point is that the number should be indefinite, not that we should keep track. This is your brother that you're talking about, a family member in the household of God. How often should I forgive my brother? Jesus says, 77, a.k.a. as many times as your brother sins against you, you should forgive him. Your forgiveness must be constant. Immediately, we should qualify that Jesus is not saying that forgiveness means you let your brother keep walking all over you. That can't be what Jesus means. This lavish forgiveness comes right after Jesus said that you are to go and rebuke your brother to try and win him back to the faith if he sins against you. The goal is restoration in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. And if your brother refuses to repent, take a couple other people with you. And if they refuse to repent, bring them before the church. So clearly, Jesus isn't saying, become a doormat 77 times. Let this person do whatever they want. No, 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 no. He has just said your goal is to restore your brother who has sinned against you to the fellowship of the church by leading them to repentance. But in terms of your own heart, your posture, your emotions, constant forgiveness. 
Last week focused on their restoration. This week focuses on our own internal states. Jesus is saying your posture, your posture throughout that process should be one of constant forgiveness. And to illustrate, Jesus tells a story. And the first point he makes through this story or or parable, you might say, is that forgiveness is sacrificial. So we've seen that forgiveness is constant. And to illustrate that, he tells a story where he begins to illustrate that forgiveness is not only constant, but it is sacrificial. If you look at 23, you'll see that there is a king and there are servants. And the king wants to settle his accounting books. It must be that that time of year for kings where they come and call in their debts. Someone owes him money. And actually, the someone is one of his servants. One of his servants owes him a lot of money. You see in verse 24, it says 10,000 talents. In modern day language, um, this is something like over a billion dollars. One commentator says, it's as though Jesus is saying the equivalent colloquially of he owed him a zillion dollars. Like a number that you can't even think is real, he owed him that much money. It's an impossibly large amount of money. That's what's meant to be communicated when someone would hear 10,000 talents. It's laughable that anyone could pay this back. But the king sees that the time is up for the person to pay. So he goes to them to, to collect. Now, we might immediately you know, recoil at this and think, this, is, this king is cruel. He's, he's treating his servant unkindly, but he's, he's actually... Uh, owed the money. He didn't give his servant a gift. He gave him a loan. And now it's time to go and pay back the loan and make the financial aspect of their relationship whole again. But since the man could not pay, the king initiates a sale of the man and his wife and his children. You see in verse 25. And as unpalatable as this illustration undoubtedly is to our culture, the point should not be missed. The king, in a certain sense, is just coming for what is owed to him. But how does the man respond? Look at verse 26. He begs for patience and a payment plan. Patience and a payment plan. Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. But thankfully, the way Jesus crafts this story... He doesn't give him a payment plan. He doesn't show patience to him. You think, wait, those, those would be good things. But actually, he gives him something far better. The master has pity on him and forgives the debt. He forgives him the billions of dollars that he was owed. And this is a massive sacrifice, but the way it's described is as forgiveness. The decision to forgive would have cost the king billions of dollars. And the word pity here, it's not the, the negative sense of pity that we think of, like, oh, I, I pity you in a way that we, we don't like to be pitied. It's actually used in other places that's translated compassion. Matthew 9, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. It's the same word. Why they harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Or Matthew 14, Jesus went ashore and he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Or Matthew 15, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away, lest they faint on the way. Compassion. 
The word pity should remind us of the way Jesus responds to our desperate needs. It's the same word. He has compassion on this servant. The the king is showing compassion to the servant. The very heart of God, the very heart of God is what we're looking at in this story. It's meant to motivate us to be willing to constantly forgive. Remember, that's the question. How often should I forgive my brother? And so Jesus wants to show us the very heart of God. And he tells a story about a king who's willing, because of the compassion in his heart, to forgive billions of dollars of debts. Now, if this were just a one-off in the Gospel of Matthew, this idea of compassion, we shouldn't focus on it so much. But this word, this word compassion, illustrates Jesus' treatment to people who are sick, to people who are hungry, to people who need a shepherd. We should have that in the back of our minds when we see Jesus telling a story. He uses this word often to talk about the heart of God for sinners to forgive them, to help them, to heal them, to feed them. It's meant to tell us that this king, this king is like God, compassionate, ready to forgive, a heartfelt, compassionate king, and it's what motivates his forgiveness. It's not a tax write-off that motivates him. It's not the thought that, oh, now he'll owe me one. It's his compassion that motivates his forgiveness. And it's massively sacrificial. There was an immeasurable cost paid. Why? I don't know if I can say it enough. The heartfelt, sacrificial compassion of the king. And forgiveness is always sacrificial. It's always sacrificial. If somebody offends you, you decide either to bring justice to them and make them pay you back, or you decide to forgive the debt and sacrifice what is owed to you so that the relationship, so that the relationship might be restored. Forgiveness is sacrificial. Well, third, forgiveness is reactive, reactive. Now, I was going to say it's reactionary, but accor- according to uh, searches, the word reactionary is a strongly political word. <laughs> That's not what I have in mind. Forgiveness is reactive. What I mean by reactive is real forgiveness flows from a reaction to the forgiveness offered by God. So let's look at how Jesus teaches this concept. He illustrates this by describing how the man reacts to the forgiveness of the king. And unfortunately, he reacts in the wrong way. Look at 28 and 29. When that same servant went out, he found one of his own fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. We have to stop and imagine these words. I mean, this, this man has his hands around this person's neck. Perhaps he has them against the wall. He has just come. He has just come from being forgiven a billion dollars. And now he has his hands around this man's neck saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Now, a detail As you might expect, the amount in this case is only a few hundred dollars. And instead of forgiving his fellow servant, the man resorts to violence and attempts to choke him. 
He refuses, verse 30 tells us, he refuses to put him on a payment plan. He refuses to be patient. Unlike the king, instead of refusing the payment plan and offering forgiveness, no, he throws the man in prison. This is how you, you are not supposed to react to forgiveness. But this isn't the last word. His fellow servants are watching what happens and they're greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master, you know, the king who just lost billions of dollars. They go to him and they tell him what just happened. And so the master calls the servant who we would describe as the wicked servant at this point. He summons him and says, you wicked servant, verse 32, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? How should the man have responded to his master's forgiveness? How should he have reacted to this debt of a billion dollars being forgiven? When his friend or fellow servant, you might say, comes to him and asks him to forgive a couple hundred of dollars. Jesus tells us he should have had mercy. He should have forgiven. You see, we demonstrate that we understand the infinitely great debt of sin that God has forgiven by becoming merciful. Mercy is not giving people what they deserve. Mercy is forgiveness. And the way that you prove, that you understand the phrase, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the way you prove, the way you demonstrate, the way you live out your understanding of the phrase, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, is by practicing constant, costly, and compassionate forgiveness. You see, this is what God has offered us. Constant. Constant. Jesus is right now right now pleading his blood on our behalf. He is right now interceding for those who trust in him. The forgiveness is constantly ours. We can constantly go to the throne of grace to receive mercy, that is forgiveness, and help for our time of need. Constant, costly, and compassionate forgiveness is what God has offered us by Jesus willingly going to Jerusalem Willingly going to the cross. As 1 Peter 1.18 says, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus' parable is an attempt to describe how Im- incredibly valuable and precious his own blood is. It's billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of value, an amount you could never place because it is pure, it is perfect, it is sinless, and it is offered to ransom us from our futile ways. So we can see that we are to respond to that forgiveness. How should you have responded? The master asked the servant, how should you have responded? You should have forgiven him, is the point. You demonstrate your understanding of your own forgiveness from God by forgiving others. You react to forgiveness by forgiving others. Well, finally, 
verses 34 and 35, uh, we see that forgiveness is heartfelt. It is heartfelt. In anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The compassionate king, the compassionate king who shows us what the kingdom of heaven is like, who shows us this kingdom of forgiveness, is also one who will withhold forgiveness. Did you catch that? The kingdom of forgiveness will be withheld from those who refuse to forgive others. If there is a bitter root that you're harboring, if there is some person who you just cannot forgive, think about the contrast between billions of dollars and a few hundred. But of course, that, that sounds trivial. We can't even get our minds around that. Imagine the perfect life of Jesus Christ. And your sin, try and compare them. That's what the goal of the story is. It's meant to show us that if God, if God in his compassionate, sacrificial forgiveness could restore us, then we, then we, insofar as we understand that, will be able to go and forgive others constantly and sacrificially and compassionately. And as this fourth point shows us, in a heartfelt way. In a heartfelt way. We are not to offer mere lip service, no. We are in a certain sense to stay with the parable, to put our money where our mouth is. We are meant to sacrifice. It is meant to be heartfelt. If we don't do this, it demonstrates that we are proud It demonstrates that we don't think Jesus needed to suffer on our own behalf. It demonstrates that we think that what others have done to us is worse than what we have done to God. But the story keeps telling us over and over again that it was billions versus a few hundred dollars. The servant should have said, you owe me a couple hundred dollars. Oh, (laughs) I just received a billion dollar forgiveness of debt. I forgive you. Oh, you have sinned against me. I have been forgiven by the creator of the universe, even though I rejected him. Yeah, I can forgive you. Jesus died because of me. Yes, I can forgive you. The more we meditate on how much we have been forgiven, the more we will be able to forgive the more we'll be able to sacrifice our claim to what someone owes us. Maybe they owe us an apology. And maybe they owe us money. And maybe they owe us time. Whatever it is, verse 34 and 35 are teaching that if we refuse to forgive others in the family of God, Jesus wants us to know, this is a warning, he wants us to know that we are putting ourselves on a trajectory toward the eternal imprisonment Illustrated by the torturous prison that the wicked servant is sent to. If you, for a moment, are harboring uh, you know, an unwillingness to forgive, 
but the Spirit brings you back and you decide to forgive. That's not what Jesus is referring to here. He's referring to a trajectory of throwing somebody in prison, saying, you're dead to me. That's what the man did. He said, you could go to prison for all I care. If that's your heart towards somebody, you're on a trajectory toward being put in eternal imprisonment yourself. It's a hard warning. But the goal is not to just leave us in that warning. No, the more we see and receive and enjoy the sacrificial, compassionate, constant forgiveness of Jesus Christ, the constant forgiveness, the constant access to the throne of grace, the more we'll be able to offer sacrificial, compassionate, constant, heartfelt forgiveness to others. So if you're going to be a person who says, my creed is that I believe in the forgiveness of sins, then get on your knees tonight and plead with God to show you how much he has forgiven you so that he might in turn make you and me a forgiving person. The stakes couldn't be higher. To know forgiveness is to become forgiving. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this hard teaching and yet the clear picture of the gospel that you've put on display, uh, that you are a compassionate king and that you have sent your son to sacrificially die on our behalf because you're compassionate this is who you are, God. And we confess we only barely understand. And so we plead that you would send your spirit to help us understand how much we have been forgiven so that we might follow Jesus' words and forgive others. And we ask this in his name. Amen.